the spring of 2011, I made a terrible mistake. I was in my third year of seminary in Louisville, working as a supervisor at the UPS Worldport. And uh, Mindy and I had just received our first son into our home. And uh, I was running late, as often as I, I often was, because I was in class on one side of Louisville and then trying to hurry my way through downtown and south to the airport in time to make it to work on time. And I pulled up, and I ran through the parking lot, as I often did, in hopes of reaching the shuttle. Because missing the shuttle would then mean a further five-minute delay, and I was definitely going to be late for work. The problem is, in order to get to the shuttle, you had to get through airport security. So, I tried to hurry past airport security, hoping, hoping that they wouldn't notice. They did. Well, because uh, Louisville is an international airport, I was in big trouble. The TSA had to get involved and make sure that I wasn't a terrorist trying to bring a bomb into the airport. I was suspended from my job for a week. I was humiliated, embarrassed, and ashamed. All of my coworkers knew I was a Christian, and more than that, training to be a pastor enrolled at seminary. And here I was, doing something like this. More than that, I had jeopardized my family's livelihood just as we had received a child into our home. Thankfully, the Lord did restore me to that job after a week and many apologies and tears. But God taught me an important lesson through that experience. I wasn't a little boy anymore. I had grown man responsibilities, a wife and a child to take care of. I couldn't act impulsively or afford to have a lapse of integrity ever again. I mean, you look back and think about it, what an idiot. Willing to gamble our future to avoid being five minutes late. To call the whole experience unpleasant would be to... Uh, be an understatement. And I'm sure if we were to take the time to go around this room, all of us have experienced something similar. Recall the time when the Father's discipline dealt us a heavy blow. It's painful. It's sorrowful. It's unpleasant. Discipline always is. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. If you're joining us this morning, you are catching us on the tail end of our series through Hebrews. We've made it 11 chapters in, two more to go. Last week in the faith chapter, perhaps you've read that one before, whether you've read the whole book of Hebrews or not, you've probably heard of the faith chapter. And uh, last week we were encouraged to imitate the faith of all those who have run the race before us, all the saints of the Old Testament and to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has endured the cross, made it to the finish line, and now is waiting for each of us to cross while seated on his heavenly throne. 
But a race of any distance requires discipline and endurance. That's why most of us in this room probably hate running. <laughs> People sometimes will say things like, yeah, running gets easier, you know, the more you do it. And I've run thousands of miles in my life, and I can say it doesn't get easier for me. There's still some days I get halfway out there, and I'm like, am I going to die before I make it back? I don't know. We'll find out. The fact is, the longer we run, the more discipline we need to make it to the finish line. And that discipline, the scripture they're going to show us this morning, is something that we do not inherently have. It's something the Heavenly Father has to give us little by little. So if you found Hebrews 12, why don't we stand together as we read God's word beginning in chapter 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly dis the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves." and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. 
At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. You may be seated. You heard the word over and over again. I didn't count up how many times it appears, but it's a lot. The word discipline is used over and over again in this chapter. It's the main theme. And this passage, as it unfolds, lays out three things about the discipline of God. Number one, the nature of discipline. But secondly, in the middle part, we see the danger of discipline. And thirdly, we realize the end of discipline. What is God's end goal in all of this? Well, let's look first and number one at the nature of discipline. This is verses 3 through 11. Our author encourages us in verse 3, consider him, he's speaking about Jesus here, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So when we begin to consider the nature of God's discipline, our author points us to how the Father interacted with the Son. Look at Jesus. And even more specifically, we're pointed to his suffering and crucifixion. And even more pointedly, we are told to look at the things he endured from sinners. Think about that for a moment. The betrayal of Judas. The false accusations and sham trial put on by the chief priests. The beatings. The spitting. The beard plucking. The thorns on his head. The mockery. The humiliating walk through the town of Jerusalem. The piercing nails. The biting words. The spear in his side. Death itself. All these things he endured from sinners. And when we consider him, we then are beginning to understand the nature of discipline. You see, I think that this is true about most of us. We're often willing to endure discipline at the hands of the righteous. When we can recognize that the person who's disciplining us is doing it for our good and for our benefit, we're willing often to endure it. But Christ endured at the hand of sinners who were bent on destroying him. And this is the nature of discipline. God often uses the hands of sinners to discipline his sons and daughters. It's very strange. But it's undeniable in the life of Jesus. And our author says you should expect the same. He did it with Jesus. We cannot doubt that he will do it with us. This afternoon you can go and read about the story of Joseph, Joseph beginning in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph, a young man who did basically nothing wrong his entire life, a man of full integrity, and his brothers 
got together, sold him into slavery, and time and again he was wronged by sinners, and yet he endured. And at the end of his life, he looks back and he recognizes something to be true about every time sinners tried to destroy him and do him evil. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. We're often able to motivate ourselves to endure discipline from those who mean us well. This is the hard thing. Enduring God's discipline means sometimes enduring it from those who mean evil against us and trusting that somehow God means it for our good. The author of Hebrews continues in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So as... <laughs> As we consider the nature of discipline, we do have to be honest with ourselves. Anyone here been crucified recently? Anyone here suffered under the eternal burning wrath of God for all the sins of the world? No one going to raise their hand? Okay. <laughs> then what we need is not for the discipline to let up and for things to get easier. We need to realize the true nature of discipline. What is God doing in these hard things? Verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, this is God speaking to you. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Discipline, the nature of discipline, is a sign of the father's love, not his rejection. The thing in your life, the things in your life that look like hate and feel like rejection are actually the Father's love and his reception. When things grow hard and unpleasant and sorrowful, we don't need it to go away. We need a brother, we need a sister to take up God's word and say, don't you remember Proverbs 3? God has already spoken about you, my son, my daughter. Understand what I'm doing in your life, this hard discipline, the nature of it, it's my love to you. That's what it is. It's me receiving you as my son, as my child, not rejecting you. We need brothers and sisters who are going to say to each other, I know this is hard, but this is happening because your heavenly father loves you. In fact, verse 7 would indicate that a lack of discipline, a lack of need for endurance, a lack of struggle and hardship in your life is a sign that you are not one of God's sons or daughters, that God does not love you. Verse 7, it's for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Think for a moment. Dads and those who have had dads, why do fathers discipline their kids? What are some reasons? Well, Number one, for protection. Kids don't know all the dangers that are out there, so dads have to set parameters and sometimes discipline their kids when they cross those lines to keep them safe. Don't run into the road. Don't run across the parking lot. Those kinds of things. Dads discipline their kids for their health. There's a reason why we don't let our kids sit down with a pack of Oreos and eat as many as they want. Although we may do that after they go to bed. It's not good for them. 
We earthly fathers discipline to instill character and develop virtues like self-control, courage, diligence, faithfulness. Sometimes dads have to discipline to confront sin or to cultivate wisdom. Fathers have to enact discipline in their homes to uh, put forth justice. When one child steals from another or hits their brother or sister, it's the father's job to bring justice into the home. We also discipline as fathers sometimes for mercy's sake to encourage forgiveness between siblings or to extend forgiveness as parents to our children. Verses 9 and 10 then make the connection for us. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So any way that our earthly father disciplines us in a good way toward a good end, our heavenly father far surpasses it. A good earthly father disciplines his children to provide for their protection and health. How much more our heavenly father? A good earthly father disciplines to confront sin and instill character and cultivate wisdom. How much more our heavenly father? A good father enforces justice and bestows wisdom through his discipline. How much more our heavenly father? We respect our earthly fathers for disciplining us in this way. But how often do we complain about and to our heavenly father for doing the very same thing? Faulty dads do their best and we endure their imperfect discipline. How much more when our perfect Heavenly Father disciplines us, whose objective is for us to share in His righteousness and holiness? I do a fair bit of baking at home. One of the things my kids like me to make is croissants. And the thing about croissant baking is it's not really an exercise in any kind of skill. It's really just an exercise in endurance. It takes about 16 hours from start to finish to make croissants from scratch. There, there's only six ingredients. It's flour, salt, yeast, water, sugar, and butter. That's it. But it takes forever. And if you want croissants at 7.30 in the morning, you have to get up at 4.30 in the morning to begin making them after having worked on them the night before also. Why? Why would anyone endure all of that? Why not just go buy the uh, Pillsbury thing out of the fridge section and pop it in the oven? Why would you do all of that? Well, because I know what's going to come out of the oven at the end. And I know just how good it is. Brothers and sisters, we have to realize the nature of discipline it comes from the hand of a father who loves us and his discipline is required for holiness and holiness is required if we're any of us going to see God. That's the point. We want to be able to see our father face to face, don't we? That's the end goal. That's what's going to come out of the oven after all this. And so we have to endure. But we don't have that holiness in its fullness yet. And the process of discipline that brings that holiness along is unpleasant at the present. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained 
by it. It is the unpleasant and painful nature of discipline that leads us, secondly, into the danger of discipline. There are a couple of dangers that are lurking. An ever-present temptation in that we don't see the fruit of righteousness right now. We see, we feel, we experience unpleasantness. The pain is now. The sorrow is now. The persecution is now. The author of Hebrews warns us there is a danger lurking in verses 12 through 17. First of all, because the race is long and painful and unpleasant, we will be tempted toward defeatism. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what may be what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Drooping is the opposite of endurance. Sometimes it's how we feel. The danger of discipline is that it is long. And when we've been in pain long enough, our hands begin to droop and our knees begin to buckle and we grow defeated. The author of Hebrews says we have a responsibility to watch out for one another and to clear the path for each other. It's Satan who is lying traps and potholes and snares for those whose feet are dragging and hands are limp. If possible, to break those ankles and twist those knees. We have to help brothers and sisters endure when they feel defeated. Take them aside, wrap their ankles, lift them back upright, heal them with the promises of God so that they do not fall to the danger of defeatism. But there's a second danger. The danger of bitterness. The longer the pain lasts, the more tempted we will be to grow bitter at God and with one another. Hebrews warns against this danger in verse 13. Look at it with me. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. What we see there in verse 14 is that peace with everyone and holiness are part of the same exercise program. You've got to strive for them simultaneously. You cannot pursue the one without the other. You're not pursuing holiness if you are not pursuing peace with everyone. And you're not pursuing peace with everyone if you're not pursuing holiness. The thing is, is that bitterness creeps its way in and disrupts the peace of the people of God, which means they are no longer striving for holiness anymore either. The real danger, the author of Hebrews tells us, is that bitterness is contagious. Anyone here been put a pen through the wash before? Only one? Wow. I must be terrible. I've done it multiple times. <laughs> you put a pen through the wash, and it gets on everything. 
It's just one little, you know, ink ball pen and it's on every, you pull close, ah, there's a streak on this one. This one's discolored. A single bitter person can defile the whole lot. It only took one Judas among 12 disciples. Satan only needs one malcontent. He doesn't have to poison the whole tree, just one root. Just one bitter root will take care of all the rest. And here's the question that we should be asking today. Is that me? Am I the one? How do we overcome the danger? This danger of discipline, this bitterness. Verse 15 says that the rest of the church is to pursue that bitter person with the grace of God. Come join us again, sister. Come join us again, brother. Join us in God's grace. Leave your bitterness behind. Leave your hate. Come join the brothers and sisters who love you, who are not willing to abandon you, and join us in the amazing grace of God once more. Still a third danger of discipline lurks in verse 16. Not only will we be tempted to defeatism or bitterness, thirdly, we might even be tempted to sell out. Verse 16. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I'm sure that most of you or many of you are probably familiar with the story in Genesis that's being alluded to here. Esau had been out in the woods hunting for a while. And when he came back, he was hungry. He was in pain. He was going to starve to death. And so he sold out. He sold his sonship. And for what? A bowl of lentils. A bowl of soup. Lentils aren't even that great. <laughs> when the wait grows long, when the discipline of the Father has been unpleasant forever, when it's been 40 days and you haven't had any food or water, that's when Satan shows up ready to make a bargain. I don't want to be a son anymore. It's too hard. It's too long. God's asking too much. I need relief, and I want it now. I don't care what it costs. I'll give anything. Will you even sell me your sonship? Yeah, give me that bowl of soup. Satan's pawn shop is open late. Whatever immediate desire you have, whether it's sexual immorality or some personal gain, whatever it is, you want, you better bet, Satan's going to be there ready to make a bargain with you that day. You want to sell your sonship? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. Hmm. We hate it when the Bible gets so real. We look down on Esau. How could you do that? You're so dumb. And yet how many of us have given in to temptation because it scratches some immediate itch? Are we thinking of eternal things in that moment? No way. 
Forget the future. Give me what I am hungry for now. Esau learned the hard way that the consequences of sin can sometimes be irreparable. The breach you cause by your actions could ruin your life or the lives of others. Don't do it. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Don't sell out. Just don't do it. That sin, whatever you're being tempted to do in the bitterness of your heart, in the present, don't do it. You are trading your birthright for a bowl of soup. It's not a fair trade. Satan has you thinking it's worth it. But once you have made the deal, the bargain cannot be undone. You cannot take back those words. You cannot take back those actions. Just ask the man who experiences regret after murdering someone in a fit of rage. He can be forgiven. He cannot bring that person back to life. Or go ask the man who caved to the temptation to be with his coworker for the weekend. He can be forgiven, but that marriage may be over. Whatever bowl of stew that claims to eliminate the pain and the hunger, it is not worth it. I promise you will regret the bargain you have made the moment that final spoonful is in your mouth. The true danger of discipline is the temptation to trade future blessing for present relief. This is the danger of discipline. Well, thirdly, and finally this morning, what is the end of discipline? What is the end game for God? Well, the end of discipline is endurance. <laughs> That's actually what God is aiming for. That we would endure, and not just for a while, not just for a season, not just for the present, but for all of eternity. This is his goal, to turn us into people who will last forever. Using discipline to build us into people who will never be shaken. The author first contrasts the experience before Mount Sinai with our own standing before the gospel. We have not come to Mount Sinai, he says, with all of its fire and its trumpets and whirlwind and terrifying words. So terrifying, in, in fact, verse 21, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Every person who stood before Mount Sinai shook. Not a single one of them could endure. And that's why God doesn't bring us to Mount Sinai. Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in peaceful gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In verses 26 and 27, he explains that on the last day, not just the earth will shake like it did at Mount Sinai, but one day from Mount Zion, both the earth and the heavens will shake, and on that day, only the things that cannot be shaken will remain. This is the end. This is what God is angling for in his discipline. Only enduring sons and daughters of God can live in the enduring city of God. 
Only the unshakable can inherit an unshakable kingdom. And we say to ourselves, but I'm not enduring. I fail all the time. I feel like I shake like a leaf whenever there's any trial in my life. Well, the good news, that's what discipline is for. God knows that. You're still a work in progress. The Father is disciplining you so that one day in the future you can share in his holiness so that when you come to Mount Zion, you will remain. You will not be shaken. You will not pass away. And he does this for every son, every daughter whose name is enrolled in heaven. This weekend I was researching how you build a, uh, an earthquake-proof structure. Chad, maybe you've looked at this before. We don't have earthquakes really in South Carolina, but it's fascinating uh, what engineers have been able to come up with in order to build unshakable buildings. Turns out there's several ways. Number one, you build the structure on actually a flexible foundation. So when there's an earthquake, the foundation moves, but the building stays still. So you can picture like a unicyclist who's you know, wobbling back and forth and has a stack of plates up on his, you know, balanced on his nose. That foundation is moving all over the place, but the plates stay still. They can do that for buildings. Secondly, you can install shock absorbers and actually an inner pendulum inside a building that helps it maintain its equilibrium as uh, vibrations pass through the building. Thirdly, you can actually build a force field, a foundational force field out of cement and plastic concentric circles in the ground around the building so that when shock waves pass through that area, they'll go around the force field and continue rather than passing through the building. It's pretty cool. You can reinforce the structure with all kinds of sheer walls, cross beams, diaphragms, and moment-resisting frames. And the point is, and this seems so counterproductive, is actually to spread the force throughout the entire building so that every part is bearing the force, but no individual part is having to bear too much force. And fifthly, obviously, you should build with materials that are both flexible and strong. They can flex and move without being brittle and breaking. Well, how did they arrive at these ideas? Well, I can tell you some of it came from analyzing the failure of buildings that crumbled whenever there was an earthquake. Esau is an example of that. But engineers also prepare for earthquakes through simulations. They think, how can I recreate or imitate the conditions of an earthquake so that we can find the weak points of this building and then find solutions to try to prevent structures from falling in the event of an actual earthquake? And that is how God's discipline works. He's running simulations on you and on me. Conditions that are meant to simulate the earthquake that's coming on that final day when only the unshakable will stand to show us where we still need work. He knows where we need work. We don't. Ah, oh, the foundations. They cracked this time. We need to shore those up. Ah, the shock absorbers, patience, gentleness. Man, that's really lacking. We need to build those. We need more force fields of faith around this thing. We've got to reinforce the structure. The members of this church aren't spreading the blows and the force amongst themselves like they ought to. All the while, he's turning us into the most flexible and strong material this universe has ever seen, his sons and daughters. Jesus bent but never broke. On the day of his testing, he remained 
unshaken. They shook him from head to foot. They hurled every word, stone, spear, and nail they could find at him, and they all passed away. But he remains forever. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, endured the discipline of the cross to the point of shedding his blood for our sins and enduring the consuming fire of God's wrath for us. And when he emerged from the grave, he was completely untouched and unshaken by all that he had experienced. And brothers and sisters, if we will endure the discipline of God, that will be us marching out of the grave one day too. Friends, this is the holiness God's discipline is building in us. So let us not be afraid of that situation. Do not cower before that trial or hardship or persecution. It's okay to sweat. It's okay to cry. It's okay to groan. It's okay to lean on your brothers and sisters. It's okay to even pray that it would come to an end soon. But it is not okay to give up. For discipline, you must endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. He's forming in you the very character of his unshakable son who has already proven his valor and might so that on the final day, you and I whose names are enrolled in the heavenly city shall inherit an unshakable kingdom and will stand tall before him, worshiping forever in reverence and awe. Brothers and sisters, let us lean into the pain of discipline because when we do, we will find the warm embrace of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being so good to us, for knowing what we need, and for acting in our lives to save us. We pray, Lord, help us to endure, help us to trust, give us what we need, in Jesus' name, amen.